You're listening to the RSA Conference podcast, where the world talks security. Hello, listeners. Welcome to this edition of the RSA Conference podcast series, where we will be discussing contact tracing, the ethics in privacy and technology in the post-COVID world. Certainly, many of you are likely among the organizations working through plans for employees to return to the office. For many who have already opened up, there are concerns about the roles and responsibilities of becoming a contact tracing point. One practitioner recently told me that she was going to continue to serve her clients via Skype because she didn't really understand the implications of becoming a point of contact. Some business owners are concerned, but there are also privacy concerns inherent in the collection of all that data. So today we're talking with privacy experts who are going to walk us through the challenges and help us better understand the broader privacy and security challenges and implications that need to be addressed. Joe and Heather, please take a moment to introduce yourself. Hi, Casey. Thanks. Um, so I'm Joseph Jerome. I, I work on the advocacy team at Common Sense Media. We're the nation's leading nonprofit dedicated to the digital well-being of kids and families online. Um, a lot of our engagement is things like children's privacy, ed tech providers, um, and for you know some of the compliance-oriented folks out there, we were a co-sponsor of the uh, California Consumer Privacy Act. Um, my background is sort of all over the place in the, the landscape of, of tech law and policy. You know, my background has primarily been in consumer privacy, both um, working at uh, the nonprofit Center for Democracy and Technology and in private practice in big law. And, uh, you know, I got my start working on things like big data and Internet of Things at the Future of Privacy Forum, which is where I met Heather. And uh, speaking of the Future Privacy Forum, that's where I started my career. And my name is Heather Fetterman. I'm the VP of Privacy and Policy at Big ID. And at Big ID, just a little about us, we were founded in 2016. We raised a little under $150 million from our Series C And we essentially sit at the center of privacy, security, and data governance, from data discovery to data intelligence and policy management. Our platform, our features are essential to each of these markets. So I was hired at the beginning of this year as the privacy expert. So I'm our data protection officer. I also work closely with our product team on the privacy features of our product. And I additionally uh, get to be a privacy evangelist. And around the time I was hired, they also hired experts in data governance as well as data security. Prior to Big ID, I guess you could say I've also been around in consumer data protection, though more from the corporate side of things. Prior to this, I was at Macy's as the director of privacy and data risk. I previously worked at American Express. As I mentioned, I was at the Future Privacy Forum, also at the Online Trust Alliance. So I've been on the policy, corporate, and vendor side of consumer data protection at this point. Heather and Joe, thank you so much for joining us today. Joe, I'd like to start by asking you to explain to our listeners, what are the basic challenges with contact tracing? So I'll start with a disclaimer that I'm I'm not a public health expert, and when we start talking about things like contact tracing and, and basically pandemic response, you're throwing privacy experts uh, and tech folks into a whole new set of issues. But 
let's see. Uh, let's start from like a 10,000 foot level. Um, we have had contact tracing, certainly in its manual contact tracing form, for a long, long time um, as a response to public health crises. It's a basic investigative tool. Um, you know, you can look at films like Contagion or uh, you know, the Dustin Hoffman classic Outbreak, and they are doing contact tracing in those movies. Um, basically, this is a process by which you identify who could be at risk of exposure and how far the spread could be. Uh, but I think we're here now today um, because we are adding a tech garnish to all things. Um, this is true across our society. Uh, but nowadays, we have devices in our pockets um, that are oftentimes or almost always in constant contact with a stream of other devices and sensors, um, which I think you can rightly envision as something that could either simplify or augment traditional contact tracing. The, the issue and why there's so much privacy like discussion here is that contact tracing from a public health perspective is, is trying to centralize that information in the hands of public health authorities. And that centralization, whether it's in the hands of law enforcement, employers, uh, administrators, or, or really anyone in authority, that raises big privacy and surveillance issues. I think we'll talk about this, but, you know, Apple and Google have been clear that they're offering proximity detection services, not contact tracing. And they made that distinction because they were so concerned about some underlying privacy issues. But I actually think that that is an issue that's true across mobile health, mHealth applications generally. Um, whether we're talking about telehealth, um, diagnostic tools, any mobile health app that's on our phone, um, there's a whole range of really big privacy and security considerations. And that's before you even get to things like efficacy, interoperability, you know, do the apps work amongst themselves um, and sort of mission creep. And, and so, you know, we've got some really large basic privacy 101 to huge equity and discrimination issues that this pandemic is really highlighting. And I think you bring up a really good point there, Joe, that there is this sort of cross-section of privacy, but also security and the efficacy and interoperability of these applications. So, this next question is for both of you, but Heather, let's start with you. What privacy and security rules are in play here as we sort of dabble in how to handle this contact tracing world? Yeah. You know, I, I think Joe might go a bit more into what the challenges are of the U.S. sectoral approach to data protection. So I think I'm, I want to focus more on the security side of things because we don't really have a de facto security standard. And that's really one of my concerns is that when we're collecting this type of sensitive data, well, there's no set rule in place that you actually have to protect this data or use reasonable security methods. You could argue that the recent New York Shield Act, which was an extension of the New York State's data breach notification law, they actually do have some prescriptive practices on security that organizations should be taking. So that could be one step. But really, you can only really rely on data breach notifications uh, on, on these various state laws. So there's really not a whole lot in place to say, you know, these are the steps you ought to be taking. And that's really my concern from the security side is that we're putting out all of these exposure notification um, apps out there, but there's no clear guardrails around the actual protection that needs to be in place for this data. One other thing just to kind of throw in there, and this is more, I guess, on the privacy side, but one of my concerns also is really around retention 
And while Apple and Google, I believe, have come out and said that this data must be destroyed once it's no longer needed, there's no clear rule or baseline to say that it must be deleted. So there's a concern that this data could grow stale, but also that this could become normalized and this data could be used for a secondary purpose. My concern is around the lack of regulation in the United States to really help us figure out something that could be protective. There have been some U.S. federal bills that have been proposed, but it's unlikely to come to pass or really make a difference at this point. Totally. And I mean, let me just echo Heather's concerns about basic data minimization. Um, I think it's obviously a best practice whether you look at principles and, you know, Google and Apple have been pretty forward on this saying, we are just using this information for the duration of the public health emergency. But as anyone that works in tech knows, there really is sort of a, a push to, well, what else can we do with this data? And absent clear guardrails, I think there's really reason to be concerned. You know, look, my, my bread and butter is basic, like, privacy laws. And the reality is when it comes to health information, our primary health privacy law, that's, that's HIPAA with one P, the Health Information Portability and Accountability Act, that's the law that immediately comes to mind when you think about privacy and health information. But that law does not really govern any of these pandemic responses. Um, HIPAA applies to certain covered entities. It doesn't apply to employers. It doesn't apply to, you know, brick-and-mortar stores trying to control customers coming indoor. Um, and so, really, you know, what we're seeing guidance on is how some of our privacy laws could touch on this pandemic. So the Department of Education has put out guidance about how the, the our student privacy laws could, you know, impact the pandemic. And, you know, I think most businesses, the biggest applicable law is the ADA and OSHA, um, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission has been, you know, pretty regularly updating its guidance on how the pandemic intersects with the Americans with Disabilities Act. This includes basic confidentiality requirements around information you're collecting about employees' you know, health statuses. And, and the Rehabilitation Act, which governs reasonable accommodations and, and medical examinations. Those are not traditional privacy laws, but they're highly important right now um, in the context of, of sort of trying to cabin and control the pandemic. Um, and I think that highlights just a real problem with our, our overall legal framework for how we think about data in this country. The Federal Trade Commission's also put out guidance as well on um, privacy and the pandemic. But to Joe's point, you know, there's nothing enforceable there. And, and I think that's what's right. leaving everything very, it's a very open-ended question right now. And then also with HIPAA, at the beginning of the pandemic, they, our, our government was saying, no, let's relax HIPAA guidelines so that way people can communicate if need be and not have to worry about enforcement. So it's, it's a little unclear. I'd also just point out, and, you know, this is with all respect to the Federal Trade Commission. I mean, they're, they're doing yeoman's work here. But you know, their guidance is about a page long and a couple of general recommendations that amount to yep. try to use aggregate data when you can. Well, okay, sounds great. <laughs> so, Heather, you mentioned, you know, that there have been a couple laws at the federal level that have been proposed. But what are some of the challenges with getting federal privacy law enacted? Um, Joe and I love to debate this topic, but to keep it pretty simple, whether or not it's a general omnibus federal privacy legislation or one specific to COVID, it really comes down to private right of action and federal preemption. 
and this seems to be a really big sticking point. They're black and white issues, and neither side seems to want to compromise. And Joe's actually done, uh, he wrote an interesting article about, I think, did you call it qualified private right of action, about having private right of action for maybe very specific parts of a regulation, but a lot of businesses are not a fan of private right of action because that's essentially what allows for class actions to occur, since individuals can then sue versus only worrying about an agency enforcing the regulation. And agencies are already pretty overwhelmed with a lot of other things going on, So it's really trying to figure out what's the right balancing act here. And then a lot of states coming out with their own regulations, although I haven't seen anything specific for COVID regulations, but states are pretty concerned about their more protective measures being taken away if they create something. Joe, did you have anything you wanted to add to that? We can talk about the challenges with with federal privacy legislation until the cows come home. I mean, so I think Heather's totally right at where the big dividing points are. Uh, I, I would point out if we're, you know, trying to think about what could be best practices here, um, that there are a couple of federal proposals. Um, there's one that's largely Senate Republicans. There's a proposal that's a mixture of House and Senate Democrats. And then there is a Senate bipartisan proposal. These are the uh, you know, for acronyms and names that nobody will remember, the, the we've got the Exposure Notification Privacy Act, the Public Health Emergency Privacy Act, and the COVID-19 Consumer Data Protection Act. Um, and they vary a little bit in terms of their scope and substance. But I do think, aside from figuring out what enforcement looks like and whether these clear the slate of other state proposals, they have sort of coalesced around a couple of core ideas. Um, the first is the role of consent. All of these proposals operate on the assumption that COVID data, health data, pandemic data, location data, proximity data, none of this stuff should be collected without individuals' consent. Um, these proposals all try to invoke some sort of data minimization into it. Um, in other words, that this data shouldn't be repurposed for other uses. There's deletion requirements that this stuff should be either periodically deleted or deleted at the end of a public health emergency. Um, there's efforts to try and impose some basic data security requirements on this information. Um, and then, you know, this is mostly from the Democrats, but I think it is of, of high interest to the civil rights community and, frankly, advocates across the country are anti-discrimination provisions so that your use of this information uh, isn't going to be used against you. And you can think about this, for example, of you know, employers not letting people come back to work unless they enroll in certain apps or what happens if you don't have a functional phone and don't have a contact tracing app, can you go into your local grocery store? Um, there's, you know, I think there's a larger sort of hypothetical concern, but there's sort of worries that this could actually become a tool of voter suppression. Um, folks will have to have sort of pandemic passports that verify their, you know, their COVID status. Um, and if you don't have that, what does that mean? Uh, and so all of that is percolating into this legislation uh, Congress rarely gets anything done, and they're not going to get much done in election year. Uh, but I do think there's stuff in these bills that is worth any sort of company or vendor that's trying to address the pandemic. It's, it's worth them thinking about. So this wasn't an actual legislative proposal, but this came from a couple of, uh, let's say, academics and advocates. And Joe, what was it, the COVID for Data proposal? The data yes, for I'm a huge proposal. fan of it. Yeah. And just to go to your point about, you know, some of the concerns that we're seeing, but in this proposal, they said there's no consent because everyone has to automatically be engaged or involved in this and that you'd have to have some sort of smartwatch or smartphone tracker. 
So, you know, it was a very, I'd say, idealistic, utopian proposal with this assumption that nothing's ever going to go wrong and no one's going to discriminate against anybody. But, yeah, that, that's, not the, that's not the world that we live in. But I did think that was also a really interesting and unique proposal. Totally. And, I, you know, this is, a, this is a separate conversation about just digital divide issues in this country. But when you think about our reliance on technology here, uh, I think it's important to recognize that only there's still one in five Americans do not have a functional smartphone. So that's 20% of the population that wouldn't be able to take advantage of some of these apps anyway. And that's putting aside people that have older model smartphones. Um, there's a real, like, tech equity issue here that I think sometimes isn't appreciated. And even to your point, Joe, we saw that, you know, I live in a city in Massachusetts and, you know, with the remote learning, we saw that, you know, the schools now need to be distributing devices to kids in order to be fair and equitable to get access to education, right? There are so many ways that we're reliant on technology that uh, aren't equitable across all aspects. You put the words in my mouth. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, what's really interesting about the proposed laws that you bring up is that they are in many ways helping to advance a general conversation about pandemic data, as well as data in general and how it should be treated. So I'd love to hear from both of you and let's start with Heather. What are some of the guardrails that need to be put in place around data minimization and data security? If we're going with guardrails, then, as you mentioned, data minimization. So are we collecting the minimum amount of data that's necessary for some sort of exposure notification or contact tracing? And in terms of how we can do this from, let's say, the digital lens, uh, we would want to make sure that we are limiting it to this very specific purpose and use case. And then from that retention side, that we are only retaining this for the limited amount of time that we need it for and that it would be deleted thereafter. I, I know that a lot of these bills and proposals do talk about consent, but, you know, I, I really struggle with this internally because while I am on the consent bandwagon, I don't know how it would apply in this case because in order for these initiatives to really work, from that efficacy standpoint, I think, what is it, you need 60% of the population to at least be using one of these devices. And if people are going to consent and, and go through an onerous process of consent, there might be a problem. And then the other challenge is trust, because people may not trust these devices and these companies and our government and whatnot. But, you know, that way, why, why would they want to consent? So I, I feel like we're stuck in this weird catch-22 where this can only work in America if we actually consent to these devices. But if we were not, if no one is really consenting or actually downloading this, then how are we going to actually get the user adoption that we need for this to be effective? Absolutely. I, you know, we talk a lot about trust deficits in, in privacy debates generally. And look, I, I saw a study just last week that highlighted that 71% of Americans won't download one of these contact tracing apps. 75% think that their digital privacy is at risk from technology. And you know what? We, we see this over and over and over again because while, you know, we're discussing contact tracing apps, I think the pandemic re-raises all sorts of unanswered basic fundamental questions about apps, platforms, tech generally, but also just the collection and use of location information and, and health tracking generally. Um, you know, I keep referring to a what I thought was a really interesting study from the International Digital Accountability Council. They were looking at contact tracing apps, telehealth apps, a bunch of mHealth apps, 
And they were finding a lot of these applications were failing, again, basic privacy 101 things. Um, it's, you know, lack of transparency uh, in their privacy policies. I mean, this is stuff that has been bedeviling privacy professionals for, for decades now, and it isn't new. Um, but you're seeing that these apps also have problematic data sharing and incorporation of third-party SDKs, which is just leading to data leakage. You've got basic data security problems. Um, I think the report highlighted that the CDC's own app wasn't actually encrypting data in transit. I mean, come on, that's data security 101. And then you're seeing from a lot of these apps really requests for really expansive permissions um, about you know, other information on the phone. And, you know, again, maybe all of this stuff is relevant to providing and responding to a public health emergency, but it seems to highlight the same basic fundamental privacy issues we've been seeing for years and just continue to go unaddressed. And just to kind of add to that, I know that we're focusing on these first-party contact tracing apps. But the other thing that's also been happening is a lot of these third parties that have been around forever and collect location data are suddenly saying, well, we have this whole other use case now because in addition to knowing where to advertise to someone, we can also know where crowds are gathering together. There's really no guardrails in place for what these co- these third-party companies can do because they did not get the official consent or the consumer doesn't actually know about these third parties. And then the concern is also, are they being used for any additional purposes? Because I think it was in Minnesota, but there was a report that they wanted to use contact tracing apps or, or third parties to track where protesters were moving. And while on the one hand, that might be good for gathering where a crowd might be so you could track the spread of the virus, that's not really great for freedom of expression. Absolutely. And, you know, we've mentioned the contact tracing apps quite a few times, but What are the implications of employers requiring these apps and what protections will employees have and how do we ensure this information isn't actually used against them? So I think that's probably the million-dollar question. Um, Again, I think it should be a rule of thumb that employers shouldn't be using this information in a way that's adverse to their employees. Um, and, you know, obviously we have anti-discrimination and workplace safety laws that exist, but those aren't privacy laws. And I think this also, again, you know, to get back to this discussion of U.S. taking sort of weird sectoral ad hoc piece-by-piece approaches to, to governing stuff, this really highlights a real gap we have in workplace surveillance and workplace privacy protections. Um, you know, I, I would highlight uh, some work that the Georgetown Center on Privacy and Technology was doing last year to sort of re-raise this issue. Um, so many of the, of the privacy proposals being discussed at the state and federal level exempt employers. Uh, and employers are going to be the people that are really going to be needing and using this information. Um, and, you know, we're already seeing anecdotally stories of, you know, PwC, the, the giant consulting firm, is, is developing a, a mobile app both for itself and for corporate clients that can track employees that are in close contact with each other. And, you know, we've got other examples of Amazon is open sourcing some AI computer vision technologies in their warehouses to sort of monitor and enforce social distancing. Um, you know, I, I saw a story just last week uh, of, you know, other, again, analytics companies using video analytics to, to monitor social distancing, detect, you know, if workers are wearing masks. So that raises the, you know, the, the facial recognition question. And then you have, again, sort of generic 
buzzwords or PR stuff that will monitor temperatures and other behaviors. Well, we're going to roll out technology to monitor behavior. That really, I think, raises this mission creep, slippery slope idea. Um, And it's uh, this information will be used in other contexts, which, again, might not be a bad thing per se, but without any rules, uh, it it gives me as a privacy advocate some concern. And beyond just the lack of rules, I think there's a profound lack of transparency. Um, So, you know, my advice to anyone deploying any of this technology is to be as transparent as you can. And I mean that not just through legalese disclosures, but sitting down with your your customers, your employees, your students, um, other stakeholders, and trying to explain what you're trying to do here. Yeah, I agree with everything that Joe just said, and and I'll add that as an employer, you could technically rest upon the onboarding documents an employee will go through, and there'll be some line in some code of conduct that says, we can monitor you at any time. And that's essentially your consent to any of these technologies being deployed in this purpose. And I, I can't imagine many employees saying no, especially if they feel that they're in a position where they can't say no or easily get another job, when it just becomes normalized in the workforce, then we're kind of stuck with this situation in which employee monitoring is going to become the norm. And this isn't really anything new in terms of employee monitoring and what rights are there. But as Joe said, there's very, very little regulation or thinking around what this entails, and this pandemic has really has brought to light a lot of these issues around employee monitoring. And, and, and to be honest, that's really where a lot of my concerns are right now, because as much as we want to focus on contact tracing from the consumer standpoint, it's really going to be, the, the meat of it is going to be around the employee workforce, because they're going to, like Joe said, they're going to be the ones that are really reliant upon these technologies. And for good reason, because they want to protect their workforce. They don't want a lawsuit on their hands. But how do you find that right balance between protecting the safety of your workforce, but also protecting their privacy and giving them the chance to do their job without breathing over their shoulder in case they happen to be, let's say, 5.9 feet away versus 6 feet away? I'm not quite sure how all this is going to work yet. Yeah, and I mean, you know, in addition to just sort of commandeering your workers' phones, I mean, we've seen other options where we're going to use wearable devices or other types of, um, you know, bracelets or other things to monitor employee temperatures, locations, distances, where they are. Uh, and, you know, there there is law on the book and, and books and conversation about what is and, you know, when you are or are off of the clock as an employee – but in this, again, we're, we're this, the pandemic raises questions about like, where is the workplace now? I mean, I haven't been in an office in months now. My, my home is my office. Um, you know, as we sort of change to having just sort of everyone is always on, um, what does that mean in terms of the, the rights of employers to monitor their employees when they're in their home or when they are, you know, allegedly off the clock? Uh, it raises really big questions. And unfortunately, we, we don't have clear laws on the books in a lot of cases. Yeah, and it raises a lot more questions than uh, produces answers, right? I mean, these conversations are really important in determining how to move forward. But right now, what's the path forward? What are next steps? Where do we go initially from here? 
Uh, I, I wish I had an easy answer for you, Casey. I, I really wish. I really wish this was like a Deus <laughs> ex machina situation where some privacy god would come down and clean it all up for us. But that's not the situation we're in. So I, I don't know. I, I honestly don't have a real answer at this moment. But ideally, let's say ideally, in living in a realistic world, there would be some sort of tailored regulation focused on contact tracing initiatives, hopefully would include something around limiting the use, not just for any consumer-facing apps, but also employee apps or devices as well. Um, so that's living more in the idealistic world of how things might work. I, I know right now we're seeing a lot of various apps being put out um, by various states, and I don't see how that's going to be effective in the long run either, because if you go, you know, I'm, I'm in New Jersey right now, but if I go over to New York, then is the is you know what and do I have to have both apps for both states? I'm I'm not quite sure what that looks like either. So unfortunately, we haven't really had a great solution from the federal side of things. Granted, the, the Center for Disease Control they do have 500 million dollars right now to do something with health and surveillance monitoring, and I'm still not quite sure what they're doing there yet. Joe, I don't know if you know anything about that, but maybe maybe there are there are solutions. <laughs> the separate is I know you know we should try to be a little bit more optimistic here. Is it? Uh, the expression that's been, that was described to me by an epidemiologist is well, you're just throwing things at a wall and seeing what will stick. And I, I think we really are moving moment by moment. Um, you know, most of my work tends to focus on, again, children and families. And, and so I'm interested in how schools and classrooms are going to roll out this tech. And, and not just at the K-12 through level. I mean, we've already seen for colleges. Colleges are really struggling as to how or if they can open up their college campuses again. Um, what are they going to do about things like, you know, college football games and letting people in if they're even going to have that? Um, you have people struggling in good faith to figure out what they're going to do. And I think we'll, we all have to acknowledge that probably some mistakes are going to be made. So when mistakes are made, how are they going to be addressed? Uh, it's probably worth everyone's time to be giving some thought to that. Like, what are you going to do when you make a mistake? I hate as a privacy advocate falling back on transparency because I don't think it's fair to overwhelm people with more information. Um, but I do think there's, there's a role for businesses at all levels, entities to be providing as much information as they can about what they're intending to do uh, because you, you don't want to catch people by surprise. Um, you know, you can think of this example of people show up for school on day one and they're handed a bunch of stuff and told they have to agree to X, Y, and Z, and they had no advanced warning about that. That strikes me as, as an immediate problem. And then, of course, I think industry plays a really important role here. Um, we have to be sort of on the lookout for snake oil. I think you're going to see a lot of people, maybe for good, but maybe just for opportunistic sake, try to use this as an excuse to, to make a buck and to peddle products that haven't been fully vested or, or tested. And, um, you know, I think it, it behooves everybody to, when someone shows up at your door and is, is offering you this really interesting solution to the pandemic, um, to not just sort of grab it the first thing you can, uh, particularly if it tends to be, you know, some sort of low cost or, or free application, um, because as we all know, you know, nothing is free. And if, if you're not paying for it um, with money, you're probably paying for it with data somewhere. And just one, one point I wanted to add, because when you were talking about transparency you know, and making mistakes, it also had me thinking about accountability and that's more on the organization side, the one who is deploying these technologies. But if we go with the assumption that we're going to make mistakes because we're human and we're likely going to make mistakes, well, when we're accountable, when we're using basic privacy 101, 
and documenting and thinking through all these issues, then even if we make a mistake, we can see, okay, this is where we messed up, and this is how we can take responsibility and move forward from here. So that's also a really important part of, of the discussion that might not be happening on the, the – the end user might not have to see that discussion, but that's something that should be happening within organizations and, and regulators that are thinking about these technologies. That's a really good point, Heather, and so much of what you said has, again, raised more questions and I think mandates a lot more conversation, uh, which I think we don't do enough of before we take action, right? We we don't do enough thinking ahead and talking and um, preparing for how to accept responsibility when things go awry. Um, it has been an absolute pleasure talking with both of you, and I hope we can do this again. Before we wrap up, do you have any parting words for our listeners? You know, you had mentioned that there are fundamental privacy steps that organizations should be taking, and whether or not this is related to a pandemic, this is true for any sort of data processing activity, and there's a lot of great guidance out there about what those various data processing activities would be. I think if we actually go back to the basics here, maybe that's how we can move forward. It's just going back to these basics. I would just say that I think from top to bottom that the this pandemic and COVID-19 has highlighted some systemic failures uh, across our society, but particularly with how we collect, process, and use information. Um, I was privileged enough to be a part of a conversation with, with some state attorneys general, and they really highlighted the fact that, yeah, there are some basic nuts and bolts privacy consumer protection issues here. Um, but when you think about things like the digital divide, will people even be connected and online and able to take advantage of these technologies? We have learned that there are serious gaps there. Um, then there are, of course, a whole host of people that are very, very concerned about just the discriminatory impacts of this. Um, is this going to be used to redline certain populations? Is it going to be used to hurt already vulnerable groups that look like they're being, um, you know, if you, if you look at, you know, the statistics of who's being most impacted by the pandemic, it's, you know, it's, it's folks of color. And I think that, that, you know, this is really highlighting both how technology can, can help um, and can harm. You know, I hate to say or to the crass opportunity that, you know, the pandemic could be an opportunity here. Um, but I, I do think that all of this could lead to the opportunity to do right by some people. Um, and, and I hope that that's what happens. I do as well, Joe. What a positive way to end. Listeners, thank you so much for joining us. I hope you continue to be part of the conversation as we all try to find a way to move forward. Heather and Joe, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Casey. Thanks. Anytime. 